High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in this seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org students. That's lls.org slash students. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Want to listen to You Must Remember This without ads? Now you can when you subscribe to our new premium offerings on Apple Podcasts and Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash Karina Longworth or open You Must Remember This on Apple Podcasts to learn more. Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and this is another installment of our ongoing series, Erotic 90s. I have seen one or two things in my life, but never, never anything like this. 
several episodes back, we talked about when Drew Barrymore posed for Playboy. We didn't get a chance to talk about another article inside that issue of the magazine, a reported story about the impact of Prozac on its users' ability to orgasm. This side effect is something you may have encountered if you have been sexually active at any point since the 90s. It is a common and honestly cruel side effect of many antidepressants. In the 1995 version of clickbaiting their audience, Playboy found a clinical psychologist named James Goodwin, who suggested that these side effects were actually a net positive to the extent that he fantasized about putting Prozac in the world water supply. What follows is a dramatic reading from this 1995 article. I will play the reporter, and Dr. Goodwin will be played by Noah Segan. For eons, human sexuality for a great many men has been obsessive and compulsive. With the advent of libido-killing antidepressants, however... That's all changing. People on Prozac don't feel that compulsive need to be on top of everybody else, that compulsive push, 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 let's do it without the intimacy approach. When you're sitting in class, there's an attractive woman next to you. You find yourself able to concentrate on the issues. Goodwin's claims for the drug go even further. People get closer and feel closer. They can touch each other. A lot of rather compulsive males are telling me it's so much easier to be close to my wife now that I don't feel this need to have sex so often. I can lie close to her and she's not afraid of me anymore. She doesn't have so many headaches. Male patients look back in distress at the amount of time they spent mentally undressing women, having sexual fantasies, watching erotic videos. They say... But I've been like this my whole life. You mean to tell me that this was just part of this disorder? To those who complain they've been neutered, he counsels. Maybe we don't need to have sex so compulsively. When we're taking these medicines, we don't function as well because the body is saying, slow down. Why not just do it once or twice a month instead of three or four times a week or a day or whatever? I suggest that there might be an evolutionary or biological reason our sex drives are the way they are. Maybe there was a reason 10,000 years ago when we didn't have all of these medicines that are keeping us alive and when the animals came out and ate us. But I think we're past all that. When was the last time we evolved? 10,000 years ago. We've got old bodies that are moving into living a lot longer, and I'm not sure we need this hypersexual behavior as much as we used to. There's too many of us on the earth already. And scene. I have mixed feelings about what this doctor is saying, just as a lot of people I have known have had mixed feelings about the impact of antidepressants on their sex lives. What's most interesting here to me, though, is the idea that there are only two options. Sexual aggression that men cannot control, which is so feral that it scares their wives, who in turn have no recourse other than to feign headaches. Or evolving past ejaculation. It's worth noting that this is three years before all those quote-unquote old bodies would have access to Viagra. 
which was patented in 1996, but not on the market until 1998. When it emerged on the market, Viagra was treated as a miracle drug, giving the gift of sex back to an older generation. Bob Dole, who you may remember from our Showgirls episode when he was trying to build a presidential campaign out of protesting deviancy in movies, would star in Viagra's first ever TV commercial. The idea that it might be preferable to feel less was in tune with a popular culture whose inherent passion for consumerism and maximalism had been twisted into knots by 90s products like heroin chic fashion and grunge music, which seemed to be antithetical to the norm of consumption as an activity that was supposed to make you feel good. The Playboy piece was probably being researched around the same time as the release of Prozac Nation, Elizabeth Wurzel's memoir, which was subtitled Young and Depressed in America, and which describes a manic youth of highs and lows and sex and drugs. Prozac Nation was promoted, to quote Walter Kern in New York Magazine, as a newsworthy generational complaint. But Wurzel's actual argument is that if a whole generation is on antidepressants, something has gone wrong. Prozac may have saved Wurzel's life, but in the book's epilogue, she concludes that the drug has been overprescribed. Quote, It seems to me that there's something wrong with a world where all these pills are circulating, floating around the atmosphere like a spreading virus or bad information or mean gossip. Many general practitioners give Prozac to patients without much thought. Deep clinical depression is a disease, one that not only can, but probably should be treated with drugs. But a low-grade terminal enemy, a sense of alienation or disgust and detachment, the collective horror at a world that seems to have gone so very wrong, is not a job for antidepressants. Wurzel finished writing her book shortly after the suicide of Nirvana frontman Kurt Cobain, which she muses on as a powerful symbol of generational depression. Certainly that felt true in 1994, and as late as May 1996, coincidentally the same month the film we're talking about today debuted at the Cannes Film Festival, Movie Line magazine was using Prozac as a punchline on their cover to tease an essay in which Michael Atkinson cheekily suggested, quote, that the overwhelmingly despairing, depressing, dingy movies with which innocent moviegoers are being flooded these days have in fact been financed by a secret cabal of pharmaceutical companies conspiring in shuttered boardrooms to drive Americans to consume antidepressants in heretofore unimagined quantities. Some examples of movies that could drive a man to slug Prozac, according to Atkinson, were Seven, The Piano, Casino, and Twelve Monkeys. But was a collective desire to feel less actually on its way out? I recently came across the New York Times review of Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness, the bombastic, melodramatic, massively successful double album released by the Smashing Pumpkins in 1995, which rung the death knell for the disaffected brand of alt-rock typified by Nirvana. 
1991, the logical response to George Bush Sr.'s America was, oh well, whatever, never mind. Four years later, according to rock critic John Pirellas, apathy had given way to a search for meaning. The Smashing Pumpkins were speaking for and to, Pirellas suggested, middle-class youth in their 20s, self-absorbed, aimless, and thwarted. AIDS haunts their romances. They no longer feel as if their youth will go on forever. And they're desperate to find something solid in a world of simulations and false assurances. It may be difficult to comprehend the mid-90s idea of simulation when you probably clicked away from this podcast at some point to look at a video with a robot voiceover on the tiny computer you hold in your hands. No, we didn't have TikTok 30 years ago. But there were worries about automation. Robots were starting to replace human workers in places like auto factories in a real way. And there were plenty of other things that felt like a mechanized or virtual alternative to the human real. And those things seem to be accelerating compared to just a few years earlier. The mid-90s was when the average person first encountered the internet via email, chat, America Online, all digital simulacrum of analog mundanities. CGI in movies was really only a few years old, but one of its early landmarks was Forrest Gump, which in 1994 showed it was possible to alter images of history, causing ethical debates not unlike recent conversations about deepfakes and AI. And 1996 was arguably the peak of home video porn. The actual sex acts in porn may not be simulated as a rule, but the situations and relationships between the players largely are. This would change in 1996 with the release of the Pam Anderson and Tommy Lee sex tape which was successful not just because it featured famous people having sex, but because it was real sex, not scripted or contrived for better tape rentals. And because viewers knew it had been stolen from the stars and put out on VHS and on the internet without their permission, seeing it was violating a taboo. It was literally something we weren't supposed to be able to see. Just when professional pornography on videotape had reached a point of ubiquity and potentially banality, a stolen homemade porn videotape restored the sense of danger and transgression. I've spent many hours over the past two years talking about movies made under the shadow of AIDS, which, generally without mentioning AIDS, still tapped into the truism that humans chase sexual thrills, even if they know it could kill them. I've also spoken in Erotic 90s about a backlash to safe sex. Today, we're going to talk about a film that is the embodiment of the impulse to make sex dangerous again. Today, we are going to talk about David Cronenberg's Crash. Cronenberg's Crash is an adaptation of J.G. Ballard's 1973 novel about a married couple who fall into a sex-slash-death cult of car crash fetishists 
after the husband is badly injured in a head-on collision. Though made in Canada, Crash was cast primarily with Hollywood stars, including James Spader, Holly Hunter, and Rosanna Arquette. And its financing came from selling distribution rights upfront to various companies around the world, including to New Line Cinema, an indie which had recently been acquired by Ted Turner as part of his effort to build his own studio out of spare parts. So while this is not exactly a Hollywood movie, Hollywood money and its star system did make its production possible and also made its release extremely complicated. Crash is the last MC-17 film that we are going to discuss in depth this season. And it is the last film of the decade by a serious, world-renowned filmmaker to test the commercial potential of that rating in the US. Not that it was necessarily an unbiased experiment. Crash was also the first NC-17 film that I'm aware of that was actively badmouthed before its release by the powerful owner of its distributor. Today, we are going to talk about how Crash fits into the filmography of David Cronenberg, why it was controversial when it premiered at the Cannes Film Festival in 1996, and when it was released in the US in 1997, and why it still has the power to shock today. Join us, won't you, for part 16 of Erotic 90s. This episode is brought to you by Mubi, a curated streaming service dedicated to elevating great cinema from around the globe. From iconic directors to emerging auteurs, there is always something new to discover. With Mubi, each and every film is hand-selected, so you can explore incredible movies, streaming anytime, anywhere. This month in U.S. theaters, Mubi is releasing a new documentary from Academy Award winner Kevin McDonald, High and Low, John Galliano. It's charting the rise and fall story of the fashion designer John Galliano, who was one of the most successful names in couture until his career abruptly ended in 2011. Featuring conversations with Naomi Campbell, Kate Moss, Penelope Cruz, Charlize Theron, Anna Wintour, and more. High and Low, John Galliano is coming to select theaters across the U.S. on March 8th. For showtimes and tickets, visit Mubi.com slash high and low. And to stream the best of cinema, you can try Mubi free for 30 days at Mubi.com slash YMRT. That's M-U-B-I.com slash YMRT for a whole month of great cinema for free. Hi, I'm Una Chaplin, and I'm the host of a new podcast called Hollywood Exiles. It tells the story of how my grandfather, Charlie Chaplin, and many others were caught up in a campaign to root out communism in Hollywood. It's a story of glamour and scandal and political intrigue and a battle for the soul of a nation. Hollywood Exiles from CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. To me, movies are sex. Movies were made for sex. There's no question about it. That's a quote from David Cronenberg, who had made 11 feature films in the 21 years prior to Crash. His first, Shivers, was released in 1975. Its IMDb logline reads as follows. 
the residents of a suburban high-rise apartment building are being infected by a strain of parasites that turn them into mindless, sex-crazed fiends out to infect others by the slightest sexual contact. His next feature, Rabid, was the quote-unquote straight movie debut of porn star Marilyn Chambers. His sixth film, Videodrome, provided a similar showcase for blondie frontwoman Debbie Harry, whose kinky radio host babe seduces James Woods into piercing her ear during sex and then literally sucks him into the TV. Videodrome would come up a lot in writing about Crash. Both films link technology, libido, compulsion, and body transformation. And in fact, one sex scene in the later film is staged in a way that recalls the ear-piercing scene between Woods and Harry. But for me, the Cronenberg films that feel like the most important Crash prerequisites are Dead Ringers and The Fly. You may have seen the recent TV remake of Dead Ringers, starring Rachel Weisz, which modernizes the gimmick of twin predatory gynecologists played by the same actor. This is not a judgment on the quality of the TV version, but Cronenberg's Dead Ringers did not necessarily need modernizing the way another piece of IP from the 80s might have needed a female-focused corrective. Similarly, Nothing feels out of date about Cronenberg's 1986 remake of The Fly. If anything, it's a sterling example of how studios and filmmakers today could approach making genre films with lots of special effects and still have them be sexy and about human-adult relationships and grounded in the experience of having a body that processes desires for things other than plot necessitating mumbo jumbo and changes based on the things we put it through. The Fly, in which Jeff Goldblum's scientist uses himself as a guinea pig in an experiment that goes wrong and ends up accidentally transforming him into a repellent and lethal giant insect, was interpreted on release in the mid-80s as a metaphor for AIDS. Cronenberg always denied that this was his intention, saying that while he could understand that reading, he had been going for a more general metaphor about aging and death, and watching a loved one slip away before your eyes. Which is exactly where Crash, the novel, came from. J.G. Ballard, whose book about his experience in a POW camp in China during World War II provided the source material for Steven Spielberg's Empire of the Sun, married a woman named Helen Mary Matthews in 1954. Ten years later, she died suddenly of pneumonia, leaving Ballard alone to raise their three children. As Ballard later recalled, she was so young that I felt a terrible crime had been committed, by nature, against her. And it reminded me of all the terrible crimes that I'd seen during the war in the Far East. And it reminded me in a peculiar way of the Kennedy assassination, which had taken place the previous year and had been televised endlessly. And of the whole culture of sensational violence that had grown up in the 1960s. What I was trying to do was make sense I think, I think, of all this meaningless death. Crash was published almost a full decade later. It literalized the violent collision of newly vital sexuality and mass media and violent desire that had been catalyzing panic 
at least since Frank Sinatra first sang into a microphone in front of crowds of screaming girls who seemed to want to physically tear him apart. The novel begins at basically the end of the story, when the charismatic Vaughn has accidentally died trying to bring about the car crash death of Elizabeth Taylor. Ballard, a Brit, was writing in and about a London that had become one of the celebrity centers of the world in the 1960s, and Vaughn's sexual compulsion to be part of the death of the biggest living star at that moment both references the assassinations of the 60s and also anticipates a stupider moment in which the collective hunger for proximity to fame could result in the car crash death of Princess Diana, which happened just a few months after Crash the Movie was released. Crash the Novel was Ballard's veiled attempt to make sense of senseless death, except that it wasn't actually veiled. The main character's name was James Ballard. Of course, this invites a reader to interpret the fiction as autobiography, even if it's not. But it also, in a sense, removes the guardrails on such incendiary material. The reader knows they can't trust James Ballard, the author, to give them an objective, morally removed tour of the underworld he's describing. This aspect of the source material is key to Cronenberg's approach to adaptation. Crash feels exactly like my life, my inner life, he later said of his film, adding, I could have called the main character in my movie David Cronenberg. That doesn't mean I've done what he does. I find that living a normal life is deranged enough. Cronenberg wrote the first draft of the screenplay from his memory of having read the novel long before, and only later went back to check some of the details from Ballard's text. When he did go back to the book, he found he had recreated much of the story almost verbatim, without even necessarily trying for a word-for-word fidelity. He didn't change the name of the lead character from James Ballard to David Cronenberg, but he did refuse to create a separation between the storyteller and the story that would provide the viewer with a comfortable moral distance. Here is Cronenberg speaking about the film at an event in 1996. After I screened this, the, the first cut of the film for, the, for uh, one of the American distributors, uh, executives, he said, I don't know how people are going to access this film. That's lovely. And I said, yeah, I don't either. And then he said, um, I'm going to make a suggestion now, and I know you're going to hate it. And I said, voiceover, right? He said, right. Voiceover. And what he really wanted was the voiceover to be a voice of comfort and to explain the film to everybody. The first scenes of Crash might as well take place in that doctor from the Playboy article's imagined world in which there is Prozac in the water supply. James Ballard, played by James Spader, and his wife Catherine, played by Deborah Cara Unger, come home to one another after unsatisfying sexual encounters with other people. As they discuss their adventures, fully blasé about an open marriage that seems to give neither of them true pleasure, Catherine looks out at traffic on the highway under the balcony of their high-rise apartment and says, maybe the next one. She repeats this phrase as the camera stays fixed on the cars. 
she seems to be encouraging her husband that maybe his next extramarital dalliance will give him the thrill he's looking for. But Cronenberg's camera tells us where that thrill will come from. In the immediate aftermath of the car wreck that sets the story in motion, Ballard first sees Helen, a character not coincidentally named after Ballard's deceased wife, played by Holly Hunter. In the collision, Helen's husband has been killed instantly. She and Ballard stare at one another from their respective wrecked vehicles, in shock, and she rips off her seatbelt and rips open her blouse and shows him her breast. They encounter one another again in the hospital, as each is far enough into their long rehabilitation to attempt to walk down the otherwise deserted corridor. Ballard is alone when he stumbles into Helen, but she's not. She is accompanied by Vaughn, played by Elias Cotius. Helen grips her cane harder when she sees Ballard coming and limps past him with what appears to be pure antagonism, leaving Ballard alone with Vaughn. Mistaking Vaughn for a doctor and his interest in injuries as medical, Ballard presents his mangled leg for Vaughn like Rita Hayworth posing for a pinup, and Vaughn receives him as such. Again, here Cronenberg is foreshadowing the future of the movie. If you haven't watched the film yet, please stop listening now if you want to avoid spoilers. Celebrate and save at Ashley's anniversary sale. With Hot Buys, your choice of color starting at just $3.99. Ashley Sleep mattresses starting at $2.50. Plus, receive a free adjustable base with select mattress purchases. And shop top mattress brands like Stearns & Foster, Tempur-Pedic, Purple, and Beautyrest Black with 60-month special financing only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. No minimum purchase required. Minimum monthly payment, down payment, tax, and delivery may be required. See store for details. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you watch Crash, it's natural to fall back on your conditioning from Hollywood movies and expect a certain type of conventional plot, especially when Helen and Ballard begin a furtive affair. But Helen turns out to be just a conduit to lead Ballard into Vaughn's cult. Cronenberg frequently invoked fatal attraction when discussing the kind of movie that Crash could have been if it had followed the usual rules set by Hollywood. Here is an excerpt from Cronenberg's commentary recorded for Criterion releases of Crash. When I was uh, first trying to get this movie made, the, the, the reaction that I got more consistently than any, anything else was that it was a, a, a big mistake to have the characters be so strange right from the beginning of the movie. And the structure that was suggested always was a kind of the fatal attraction 
couple. You could see the Hollywood version of this movie, a young, attractive couple, upwardly mobile. Uh, suddenly, um, an accident brings a strange and crazy guy into their lives who becomes a sexually destructive element and uh, sets the couple against each other as they get involved in weird and kinky sex. But finally, probably, they both shoot Vaughn at the end and uh, live happily ever after. And that would, of course, involve setting the couple up at the beginning as being a kind of perfect couple, you know, give them a kid, give them a bunny, maybe, something to make them sympathetic. Um, my feeling there was that to do that would retard the whole movie about 20 steps back from where it, where I wanted it to be. If you start way back there, you're only getting rolling by the end of the movie. Unlike the novel, there is no Elizabeth Taylor plot in the movie. Cronenberg rightly said that Elizabeth Taylor didn't mean in 1996 what she had meant in 1973. But instead, Vaughn does a kind of performance art of recreating celebrity car crashes. His stuntman partner, Seagrave, still has a gaping head wound from reenacting James Dean's fatal Porsche crash for an audience when Vaughn prods him about their next project a recreation of the accident that killed Jane Mansfield. We can do this. The decapitation. The head embedded in the, in the, the windshield. And the, the dead dog thing, you know. You know, the, the, the chihuahua in the backseat. I got it all worked out. I'll be ready, Vaughn. I want really big tits. Out to here. So the audience can see him get all cut up and crushed on the dashboard. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we'll do that. Seagrave says, I'm ready. But in fact, he's too ready. He performs the enactment on his own, not in the relatively controlled performance space where we saw the Dean crash, but on a real highway. And he dies. Vaughn, Catherine, and Ballard come upon the crime scene by accident, and Vaughn's response commingles a sense of sexual betrayal with admiration. At one point, Ballard tries to have sex with Helen in a car, but he can't finish. And he doesn't seem bothered by it. Hunter then disappears for much of the film's second half, reemerging only for a brief, fully clothed sex scene with Rosanna Arquette's Gabrielle. It's Ballard's relationship with Vaughn, and the kind of sex triangle that occurs between Ballard, Vaughn, and Catherine, that catalyzes what plot there is in this film. We first understand the power Vaughn has over both husband and wife in an extraordinary scene in bed in which she talks through a sexual fantasy about her husband and the other man. Describe how you reach over and in his greasy jeans, take out his penis. Would you kiss it? A second right away. Which hand would you... Which hand would you... Hold it 
This is just a short clip of a long scene. Though earlier in the scene, when Catherine asks her husband if he wants to have sex with the other man, he says no. By the end of the scene, it's clear that what she's saying is not a turnoff for him. We watch as they climax simultaneously. This scene got the film banned in Ireland, not for its visuals, but for its dialogue, which came almost verbatim from the book. The Irish censors said Cronenberg could just cut this scene, but it was too crucial to the story he wanted to tell. In this scene, really, um, James and Catherine are invoking Vaughn in order to make sex between them possible. They really can't do it alone. And so they are verbally invoking Vaughn here, which makes sex possible for them. And then, of course, later they will physically and actually invoke Vaughn and involve him in their sexuality. So this is the beginning, the anticipation of that. Vaughn and Ballard do ultimately have sex in Vaughn's car in a scene that was widely criticized. The gay community and those who spoke for them said Cronenberg didn't go far enough with this scene. In the LA Times, Sally Tisdale wrote that the book's protagonist, quote, is far more erotically and emotionally obsessed with Vaughn than the Ballard played by Spader. Cronenberg has been taken to task for his retreat from their relationship. On his commentary track recorded for the Criterion release of Crash, Cronenberg talked about his intentions with the Vaughn and Ballard sex scene and the reactions to it. For example... This scene, a sex scene between the two main male characters, this is the scene that more people walk out of than any other scene in the movie. And it's very often young men dragging their female friends behind them by the hand, the females wanting to stay, and the guys not being able to deal with this scene. Um, On the other hand, you you get uh, gay activists who say, well, you really backed away in this scene. I mean, you really didn't didn't go all the way uh, because they wanted, you know, more nudity, more extreme. You want the stuff that you got with the heterosexual scene and so on and so on. I ignore all of this. I say that the, the kiss, this is the first kiss in the movie. And it's a major kiss that we don't turn away from. And showing uh, Elias Coteus' bare butt would not have made the scene more intense or better. So I, I say that I've not backed away at all from the, the homosexual element in the film. And I even go further to annoy people and say that I don't think it's homosexual. I think it's by this time everybody in the movie is what they're trying to do is move beyond sexuality at all to some other place. So for me, it's, you know, all of this discussion about how much screen time you get with gay scenes or not gay scenes is completely irrelevant. I felt that we went as far as the scene required and needed. Whether Cronenberg saw this as a gay scene or not, as he acknowledges, certainly some audiences did, particularly the knee-jerk homophobes who rejected the movie once they perceived that Spader's character had, quote-unquote, turned gay. There was also the fact that the scene between Ballard and Vaughn doesn't feature the explicit nudity that is on display in some of the hetero couplings. 
A version of this issue was raised at the press conference that followed Crash's can premiere, although stated not as an accusation of homophobia, but of sexism. The questioner is Canadian critic Brian Johnson from McCall's. Cronenberg answers first, and then Spader jumps in. This film is a very unconventional film, but one of the conventional things about it is that there's more... There's more female, well, let's put it this way, the women get more naked than the men, and I'm wondering why that is. Is it a contractual thing or, uh, or an artistic thing? I don't actually think that's true. I think James is pretty naked in the film. I have to say, I well, think I, he's... I, I don't want to get crass. The question that was, that was asked to me is, why is there no male frontal nudity? And was that an issue, and, and was that a, a contractual thing? No, I, I, I don't think it was ever... A question, really. I mean, I can address that. He can address that. Uh, I think that has more to do with geography than anything else. In most of the scenes, we were fucking, and when you're fucking, you don't see the penis. <laughs> this is sort of a disingenuous answer from Spader, because there is a scene in the movie in which we see the front of an actress's vagina, which is not a sex scene. The purpose of the scene is to look at her body and see how it's been damaged by her new fetish, and there is no equivalent full frontal scene of Spader. Pushed to defend his film as though he'd made a snuff movie, Cronenberg would sometimes produce rhetoric that could be described as discursive. Interviewing the director for The Village Voice, Amy Taubin said she found the source material homophobic, and Cronenberg answered, I didn't see it that way. For me, anal sex or oral sex is the most basic way of saying this is sex for sex, not for reproduction. And that's what's important. In a different interview, he expanded this idea into a kind of futurism. Quote, We're at a point now where, for the first time in human history, you don't have to have sex to have babies anymore. We could say, Sex has caused too many problems. Let's get rid of it because it won't mean the end of the human race anymore. Sex is now, more than ever, up for grabs, up for reinterpretation. Sex is now weaponry, performance. It set sail for the sunset. It's going someplace else. And I think this is really happening. This recalls the pro-Prozac doctor who said we don't really need sex drives anymore because there are too many people on the planet already. It also almost seems in line with the garbled philosophy Vaughn delivers in the film about reshaping the human body through injury and technology to overcome the limits of the organic and produce, to borrow a phrase from Videodrome, a new flesh. But what Cronenberg depicts in Crash feels less futuristic and more driven by nostalgia. James Dean, Jane Mansfield, old boats of American cars, including the one Vaughn drives, which is a replica of the car JFK was assassinated in, sex in back seats like teenagers. Car crashes may have unlocked a new realm of sexuality for these characters, but it's a sexuality that harkens back to a time when sex was forbidden, unknowable, and exciting, but also something to hide and feel ashamed of. Think about how Vaughn seems determined to ram Ballard with his car after they've had sex, in which Ballard has apparently been on top. 
This is not the reaction of a liberated futurist, described in one writing on Crash as a crazed prophet and proselytizer of the nexus of car crashes and sex. This is how a closeted teenage boy might react after a furtive coupling. As you're watching it, Crash feels like it's eschewing traditional narrative and character development, its forward motion merely an escalation in the sex scenes, in their danger and absurdity, and also how far they drift from what was considered normative in Hollywood movies at the time. This includes queerness, but it also includes scenes like the notorious one set in a luxury car dealership, in which Spader and Arquette's characters test drive a new car, and it is heavily implied that Ballard gets off using one of his partner's scars from a previous crash as an orifice. In a film that is constantly teasing what is coming next, Cronenberg has previously contrasted Spader's leg in various braces and medical devices with his wife's legs in stockings and garters, forcing us to contemplate their similarities. The logical conclusion is to eroticize a female leg that is only accessible through both a metal brace and fishnet stockings. Given Crash's seemingly episodic narrative structure, in which one sex scene follows after another, on first viewing, the only frame of reference for many viewers is pornography. For instance, writing in the New York Times, Stephen Holden claimed that Crash, quote, ventures about as far as a movie can go toward pornography without showing genitalia. Cronenberg spent a lot of time explaining why this was a misreading. One of the cardinal underlying rules of all pornography is that everybody gets off, he told Film Comment. Everybody's hot, everybody wants it, and they are immensely satisfied by it and still want more. If you don't have that, you don't have real porn. As discussed, there are sex scenes in Crash in which no one orgasms, something that you'd never see in commercial porn of the 90s. In the Criterion commentary, Cronenberg expanded on the importance of paying attention to the orgasms in his movie. Um, one of the things that this movie does is it, it, it offers sort of s uh, sequential sex scenes, two or three in a row, which is something that uh, drives a lot of people mad. They just really, they can't understand it. They can't deal with it. Uh, they think it must mean that the film is pornography. Um, someone once wrote somewhere that uh, a series of sex scenes uh, is not a plot. This was someone who had seen the film in a sort of a test screening. And my answer was, well, why not? Why can't it be? And here you see the perfect example. Um, the Holly and Spader characters uh, have sort of orgasmic, instantaneous strange sex um, because they've had a crash together and then here working to do to, towards the same orgasm with his wife uh, it, it spader is it, it doesn't work out at all because his wife has not had her crash yet even though they've he, she's sitting on his lap in the same position and so on and uh, uh, they're trying to kind of recapture the moment that he had had in the 
airport parking garage with uh, with Holly, uh, it, it's not working because she hasn't had a crash yet. So there, if you have to notice, you have to notice what's happening in that scene and not just sort of turn off and watch it as a kind of a titillating scene and that's it. It has meaning and in this movie, whether someone has an orgasm or doesn't is extremely significant and, uh, and has uh, implications and, and consequences. What is undeniably fresh in Crash, and which is still startling today, is that there is no apology for the characters, no punishment, except for some of them, death, but the film so thoroughly immerses the viewer in their fetishes that this doesn't feel like a punishment at all. In the film's extraordinary final scene, Spader, driving Vaughn's battered death car, runs Catherine, driving a tiny Miata, off the road. She is thrown from the vehicle onto a grassy knoll on the side of the highway. Ballard lays beside her and she comes to. Glassy-eyed and bleeding, she says, I think I'm all right. He begins passionately kissing her and says, repeating her line from the beginning of the movie, maybe the next one, darling, maybe the next one. The camera retreats as they begin to fuck under the wreckage of the car. This is not a story about people who discover an underworld and turn away from it, redeeming themselves and rejecting those who cannot be saved. These are people who are going to keep pursuing their fetish until they die. And in working together towards their mutual death, they've reinvigorated both their lives and their love. There is a fatalism to it, literally. But for Cronenberg, the ending of Crash leaves its main characters in a better place than where they began. For me, this, the movie is a kind of existentialist romance. And I mean that literally, you know, card-carrying existentialist meaning of that word. Um, in the sense that the characters have found that the old forms of love and sex and relationship and uh, many other things have no longer work. I mean, they're going through the motions, but it's not working. And because of an epiphany that, that one of the characters has in, in a car crash, which breaks his car, it breaks his body, but it all, you know, it's sort of the imagery of the car, the, the nice little lines of traffic, which, which, which give you the illusion of order and control are immediately destroyed in the chaos of any kind of car crash. And so suddenly you're crossing all the lines, the cars are spinning, you don't know what direction you're facing in. The car, which is, which I show as being kind of a boring, you know, I give the Ballard character a very boring car. Uh, it's comfy, it's cozy, it's completely acceptable, it's understood, non-threatening. And suddenly that's torn apart, his body's torn apart, the, lanes, the, the traffic is, is chaotic. And his life is also torn apart and he's got to put all of those things back together again he finds that they won't go back together again be because they had been coming apart anyway and um, uh, so he has to assign they, they have to reinvent he, he meets another group of people a, a group of people who have gone through the same thing and they, they begin to embark on a process of reinventing all of these former absolutes, which turn out to not be absolutes, sexuality. They're, they're reinventing eroticism, sexuality, love, many other things. And that's the, that's the, that's the, the, the trip that they go on in the movie. And they arrive at a very strange place, but in a way, 
for the characters, it's a, a bizarrely happy ending. I mean, I think this movie has a happy ending. Cronenberg's refusal to judge his characters in a way that would walk the audience through how to feel was daring 27 years ago, and it's still pretty out there today. Cronenberg and Ballard talked about this at length in a public conversation in 1996. Cronenberg speaks first, and then Ballard. Um, The moral stance, uh, as understood by Hollywood, is almost a narrative device, or it's a part of characterization. You have to give the character moral indignation. You have to be, as a filmmaker, morally outraged. But how many times have we seen films, from Hollywood in particular, where we know that no one involved in the film gave a damn about that aspect of it. It was just there as a plot device to motivate the character to jump on the bus, you know, or to to take his gun finally out of the drawer. Um, But that's all. You feel that as a machine, as machinery, as a, a mechanical device. I think the absence of a moral frame around the film, same absence that that is present in the novel. That absence is what's so original about the film. I mean, if, if you think of you know, the huge output of, of violent films from Hollywood, all the die-hard films and so on, Broken Arrow, whatever, you know, comes along this week, there's always a saving moral frame. You know, the hero is working with CIA or, or whatever it may be. Um, he, you know, Bruce Willis is not allowed to play a baddie. Um, there's all, he's always on the side of, you know, the powers that preside over our world and, and hold it together. The, what, I la- what I'm really impressed about your film, because it's much more difficult than a public medium like the cinema um, to bring this off, is, is the way you've eliminated the moral, or you dispensed with the moral frame. You present the events of the film without any apparent sort of easy get-out for the audience or for the characters within the film. I mean, you present... I mean, I, know, I don't think I've ever seen a film in which there is no moral frame uh, in quite the same way. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, never, I don't think I've ever seen a film where... There is no attempt whatsoever to sort of moralize away the events being portrayed. Ballard was not the only one who had never seen a film like Crash before. After the break, Crashing Can. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. 
Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash rs10 today. Crash had its world premiere at the 1996 Cannes Film Festival, where it played in competition alongside Fargo, Breaking the Waves, and Mike Lee's Secrets and Lies, which won the Palme d'Or and Best Actress prizes, as well as new films from Bernardo Bertolucci, Robert Altman, Michael Cimino, Stephen Frears, Jacques Audiard, and many other world-class filmmakers. The president of the jury that year was Francis Ford Coppola, who presided over a panel that also included actresses Natalie Bay and Greta Scacchi and Atom Agoyan, who was the second most prominent Canadian director at that time behind Cronenberg. Crash had its first screening on May 17th, the second Friday night of the festival. Not exactly prime scheduling. The next morning, in the first of many negative articles that they'd run about this movie, the LA Times reported that the film's first screenings, quote, provoked angry walkouts and boos from audiences upset by a story linking sexual arousal and car crashes. But some did cheer a visionary director who takes viewers to places few filmmakers dare to go. In the New York Times, Janet Maslin shared the jolt that Crash brought to the festival. Controversy at last, she wrote. The unveiling here of David Cronenberg's Crash has brought the kind of noisily polarized reaction more commonly associated with David Lynch, whose 1990 Palme d'Or for Wild at Heart proved just how quirky tastes here can be. Maslin also noted the booze, but wrote that the media was comparatively gentle. The press corps put on its kid gloves. As Mr. Lynch and many others have learned here, the international film world can be readily wowed by any shattering of taboos. And at such times, Cannes becomes the home of the softball question. I don't know if the question we heard previously about the lack of screen time given to Spader's penis felt softball at the time, or if the answer simply could not have been quoted in the New York Times. Maslin herself noted in a different piece that Cronenberg was loudly booed as he went on stage to accept a special jury prize for originality, for daring, and for audacity. In his LA Times piece on the festival's winners, Kenneth Turan couldn't resist calling Crash cold and unconvincing while reporting that the film had been honored by Coppola's jury. Although, notably, Coppola himself seemed to disdain the honor. In presenting the award, Coppola noted on stage that it was not a unanimous decision and that some jury members, quote, did abstain very passionately. Variety later reported that several of the 10 jury members in a heated panel debate staunchly refused to support the award. According to Cronenberg, Coppola himself was the staunchest abstainer. Coppola was totally against it. I think he was the primary one, Cronenberg said in 2020. The award, Cronenberg theorized, was the jury's attempt to get around the Coppola negativity because they had the power to create their own award without the president's approval. And that's how they did it, but it was Coppola who was certainly against it. In fact, during the final closing night ceremony, he wouldn't hand me the award. 
he had someone else hand it to me. He wouldn't do it himself. Later, I was president of the can jury as well. You always end up with awards that maybe you don't think are justified, but your team jury members do. You have to be gracious about it. I don't think he was very gracious. A lot of critics who saw the film at Cannes weren't exactly gracious either. Crash wrote Elizabeth Pincus in LA Weekly, smacks of bargain basement porn. It's hard to make James Spader unsexy, but Cronenberg does just that while rendering the women as blank as the vamps of showgirls. Far from proffering some new, racy form of fucking, the movie wallows in the usual POV, fixing the camera over and over on a woman's exposed loins. Comparably trite are the equal opportunity hits of same-sex eros, since when is a little boy-boy or girl-girl lip-lock worthy of such hushed awe? One outlier at this point was critic Georgia Brown, mother of Noah Baumbach. What a brave, unprecedented movie this is, Brown wrote in The Village Voice after returning from Cannes, where she acknowledged, Crash was almost unanimously disliked. Is it pornographic? Truthfully, I didn't notice, though many called it unreleasable. Within a week of the Cannes premiere, Screen International was reporting the rumor that Fine Line, the division of New Line set to release Crash in the U.S., was contemplating selling the movie if it was given an NC-17 rating. October Films, described as the largest remaining indie distributor, was seen as the likeliest candidate for a pickup. October would soon release two other Cannes Prize winners, Breaking the Waves and Secrets and Lies, as well as David Lynch's Lost Highway, which we will talk about next week. But a week after that, Variety reported that Fine Line was expecting to get an NC-17 and would not sell the movie or appeal the rating. The company's president, Ruth Vital, said, By accepting the NC-17 rating, we are acting in a responsible manner. NC-17 means no one under 17 years of age should be admitted. This is a film that was made by adults for adults. This is not a film for children. Fine Line is wholly in agreement with the MPAA and will not challenge the rating for exploitative purposes. Fine Line may have been wholly in agreement with the MPAA, but Fine Line was not an indie with no one to answer to. In 1994, New Line and Fine Line were purchased by Ted Turner. Turner already owned a number of cable networks, including TBS and TCM. He also owned the MGM Film Library, which gave him content to play on TCM. Being able to exploit one asset via another asset seemingly gave Turner a taste for more. With the acquisition of New Line, as well as the production company Castle Rock, Turner assembled what New Line founder Bob Shea referred to as a virtual studio, meaning he owned everything the majors used to own except for a studio lot, a physical locale for production. In that sense, Turner was kind of the original Netflix, especially since, like Netflix 30 years later, 
Turner seemed less interested in theatrical exhibition than in amassing a large quantity of movies for people to watch on TV. Even when Turner's company merged with Time Warner in October 1996, reporting on the merger stressed the still-growing sector of cable. CNN, which was part of the new mega-company, reported that it would, quote, embrace everything from news around the clock to magazines, as well as Bugs Bunny and the Atlanta Braves. No mention there of movies. Even though the Warner camp reportedly was interested in the deal, in part because now it would be easier for them to exploit their Turner-owned library of films. Turner was not at all involved in New Line's decision to provide financing cash for Crash in exchange for the U.S. theatrical rights. He seems to have known nothing about the movie until he watched it sometime after Cannes, at which point he tried to prevent Fine Line from releasing it. In the end, with Warner executives now in the mix, Turner had the power only to delay the release from October 1996 to March 1997. But all of this became public in November 1996, after Turner blasted Crash in a speech delivered at the Museum of Television and Radio, which was intended to encourage other television producers and networks to clean up their acts. There's too much sleazy, stupid, violent stuff on television. That's why we're getting the V-chip, Turner said referring to the technology that allowed parents to block their kids from watching certain types of content on TV. The Clinton campaign had promoted the V-chip during the 1996 election as a way of combating the family values rhetoric coming from the other side. But it was also kind of a throwback to the studio moguls bringing in Will Hayes to regulate censorship in the 1930s. With the V-chip, Clinton could protect the right of his deep-pocketed Hollywood donors to make anything they wanted free from government regulation by putting the onus of prohibition into the hands of parents. But this wasn't enough for Turner, who used his platform at the museum to encourage producers to stop making movies and TV shows like Crash, which he publicly washed his hands of in the speech. I personally was appalled and am appalled by it, he said of Cronenberg's film. The people with warped minds are going to love this movie. I worry about the first teens that try it. By it, I guess Turner meant having sex in parked cars or crashing into other cars. Two things that teenagers were already doing in mass numbers. Turner also said that Fine Line was only going through with the release because the decision was made above me. Turner's comments were widely reported, giving Cronenberg and his cast an opening to talk about what Holly Hunter described as the chilling effect corporate overlords were starting to have on freedom of creation. It's beyond crash now, and we're into an area where we're talking about our rights. Hunter said. I think it's a very chilling arena for Ted Turner to be entering when he's speculating about what could be morally reprehensible for the American public. 
reached for comment by the LA Times, Cronenberg said, Turner's entitled to his reaction to the film, but he was not the one who acquired it for distribution. New Line and Fine Line decided to take on the film. Turner was not supposed to be involved. To me, this illustrates the potential danger of feisty, independent studios like New Line and Miramax used to being Disney-fied and Turnerized. Cronenberg never met Turner during Crash's initial release, but years later, they ran into each other at the Oscars. As Cronenberg remembered, he put his arm around me and looked up to God, which I'd heard he does, and he said, hallelujah, we stopped it. I said, well, you didn't really stop it, Ted, because eventually it did get released. And he said, yeah, I guess they took the hatchet out of my hands. The hatchet. You know, he owned the Atlanta Braves. It all seems to be connected in his mind. When Crash finally opened in the U.S. in 1997, reviews were not generally more positive than they had been in Cannes. But now that Crash had the double outlaw mark of Turner's distaste and the NC-17, the critics who didn't care for it seemed to feel the need to puncture the impression that Crash was a titillating sex fest that would inspire copycats. In the LA Weekly, Manola Dargis wrote that it was, in fact, perhaps the most sexless movie ever made about sex, death, and cars. Based on his coverage from Cannes, it was no surprise that Kenneth Turan gave Crash a negative review in the LA Times, but he too stressed that the problem with Crash was that it was not sexy. Though these people engage in frequent sex, it is impossible to overemphasize how cold, non-erotic, almost intentionally asexual these acts are. The filmmaking here is so glacially paced and enervating that boredom is the most frequent result. The newspaper's formatting dictated that the review end with an advisory of the film's rating, which in this case read, NC-17 for numerous explicit sex scenes. The scenes are presented in a non-erotic manner. Even recent writing on Crash has described it as cold and too clinical to be erotic. In an essay packed with the recent Criterion DVD of Crash, Jessica Kiang writes that Deborah Kara Unger delivers the film's signature performance. She plays James's wife, Catherine, as a series of precisely posed ice sculptures. However ostensibly erotic Catherine's behavior, her endothermic characterization robs it of all heat and friction. Even her dirty talk has all the pornographic traction of a vacuum robot reading the Merck manual. It's odd to read so much writing across decades that judges the erotic value of a film as though there is one idea of what is erotic. One person's perfunctory copywriting is another person's pornography. So who are we to say that anything is guaranteed not to turn someone else on? What's interesting is that it seems like Crash's defenders are more likely to refer to the film as intentionally unerotic, as if to quelch any panic that it could be used as pornography, while its detractors, like Turan, suggested that it was a mistake in filmmaking that this supposedly erotic movie 
couldn't possibly turn anyone on. An exception came in a notorious segment on the film on Siskel and Ebert. Gene Siskel found the movie repellent and also erotic. Roger Ebert defended it as masterfully artful and unsexy. What ensued was one of the great fights between the two critics, which went beyond this specific movie and into the issues of depiction versus endorsement and the nature of both eroticism and entertainment. Crash has some beautiful bodies on view, but also some ugly ideas. And as I said, I think it really did leave me cold. Well, of course, it was intended to leave you cold. I think I liked the movie a lot more than you did. I wow. would like to make it clear that most people are probably going to hate it, be repelled by it, or walk out of it, just Why? as they did at the Cannes Film Festival. Why is that? Because it's too tough for them to take. Oh, you mean it really Roger? Is. Yes, it is. It is. Think, it is. Wait, wait a second. Sex involving wounds and blood and scabs and braces. A lot of people don't want to see it, don't want to have oh, anything but, but to do with it, don't want to be, get close wait, to wait, it. I want to be clear. Do you think that that's my objection, the nature of my objection? I felt that no. your objection was that you didn't really bring any sympathy to what he was trying to do, and I'll tell you what he was trying to do. He's trying to make a pornographic movie without pornography. He's taking the form of a pornographic movie without the function or the content. He's substituting car crashes for the usual erotic stuff in order to show the mechanism yeah. of human compulsion well, and obsession. Okay, but wait a second. And it's a fascinating study of the way the mind works wait in connection with images that right. we connect with sex. Roger, it can't. I'm, I'm going to review the movie and then I'll review your review. My objection to what you said is that I think that there are, quote, soft porno stuff in the picture. When you see sex on the hood of a car when you see people mm -hmm. making None it in bed. None of the sex scenes in this movie are directed in a way to be erotic. Oh, I think that the, oh, I think that the, uh, the one scene in bed between Deborah Carr Unger and Spader, I think that that's intended to be erotic. I think a woman touching her breast, pulling it out of her bra, that's intended to be erotic. And I think it can be erotic. I'm saying that the ideas in the film, said by the performance artist, that somehow this is a connection between life and death, yeah. that's well, a bunch you know, of hooey. The movie doesn't. It's hooey. Uh, the movie thinks so too, Gene. The movie uh -huh. is about crazy people. Yeah. That's and, what it's about. The movie doesn't argue these people are right, or mm -hmm. even that they make sense. But, but are they interesting? Yes. Not to me. You've never seen anyone like this before. Ebert, who was himself a recovering addict, seemed to understand Crash in a way that eluded many of his peers. In his three-and-a-half-star newspaper review, he described a, quote, trance or compulsion often associated with sex, also experienced by shoplifters, gamblers, drug users, stuntmen, and others mesmerized by pleasure through risk. All of the key characters in Crash live in such a trance. There are no moments of healing sanity because the characters are comatose with lust and fascination. They follow their self-destructive courses because they do not want to stop. If you seek to understand them, ignore their turn-ons and substitute your own. The result is challenging, courageous, and original, a dissection of the mechanics of pornography. I admired it, although I cannot say I liked it. Afterward, I found myself wishing a major director would lavish this kind of love and attention on a movie about my fetishes. Coming from Ebert, who is often our most charmingly horny on main critic, this doesn't come as a huge surprise. Crash was a major hit in several international markets and was named the best film of the year by the French cinephile Bible, Cahiers de Cinéma. It won six genies, the Canadian equivalent of the Oscars. It also won an AVN award, 
the Oscars of porn, which named Crash the best alternative adult feature film. At a time when porn was becoming increasingly mainstream, narrative films that were perceived to be or marketed as for adults only were increasingly marginalized. Fine Line had no choice but to market Crash this way because of the pre-release press from Cannes and about Ted Turner, but mainly because of the NC-17 rating. The distributor tried to secure a wide-ish release, but three theater chains, General, Karmica, and Regal, refused to book the film. Many AMC theaters were unable to accept bookings of Crash because they were in shopping centers and had a clause in their leases, barring them from showing anything but G, PG, PG-13, or R-rated movies. In the end, Fine Line's booking reach maxed out at about 330 screens. This was about par for the course for a film with this rating, but Crash had an artistic imprimatur that other NC-17 releases in the U.S. had not enjoyed. As Variety reported, Fineliners were surprised at how a can honoree could be systematically shut out of major chains. When the film had opened on 42 screens in October 1996 for a one-week Oscar qualifying run, it earned a high per-screen average of over $17,000. But when the film opened for real on March 21st, 1997, its per-screen average dropped to around 2,000. Crash hung around in theaters for about five weeks, grossing just over $3 million total. We've talked before about explicitly sexual films that bombed at the box office in the U.S., but found a long and lucrative life on home video. Key examples being Nine and a Half Weeks and pretty much everything directed by Zalman King. That was back when it was possible to make a killing on an unrated VHS promising extra footage that couldn't be seen on a movie screen. But times had changed in the decades since Nine and a Half Weeks, and in the case of Crash, the reverse happened. There was no extra footage for home video because the NC-17 version had been theatrically released. And now, the perceived path to profit lay in making a comparatively clean version that was safe for the shelves at Blockbuster. New Line released an R-rated home video version of Crash that was almost 10 minutes shorter than the theatrical version. There are a couple of places on the internet where you can go to read an itemization of all the cuts but the gist is that most sexual content was either removed or made much shorter. The entire sex scene between Ballard and Catherine, in which she talks about her fantasy of her husband having sex with Vaughn, was removed. But the actual scene between Vaughn and Ballard, which contained no explicit nudity, was not. The sex scene between Spader and Arquette in the car dealership remained intact, but the R-rated version doesn't have the dialogue between Spader and Hunter in the scene in which neither of them orgasms. They are just shown finishing up what a viewer is led to infer was satisfying sex. These cuts are interesting because, in a couple of ways, they go against what we had come to expect from the MPAA. 
The sex scene between Ballard and Vaughn is the least graphic sex scene in the film, with no visible nudity, so it is allowed to stay, even though the MPAA historically gave harsher ratings to films with same-sex couplings. But what the MPAA does want removed from this film is the dirty talk during marital sex in which a third party is evoked, in which a wife helps her husband get off by vocalizing a fantasy about him having sex with another man. When that scene is in the movie, Crash says that queerness is not something that can be compartmentalized on the margins, and that a hetero marriage can not only accommodate but become revitalized by the idea of the husband having queer sex outside of the marriage. To the MPAA, the gay scene is acceptable if it looks like a furtive aberration from the marriage. But the ratings board does not want a viewer to get the sense that this dalliance is actually essential to making the marriage stronger. The R-rated version of the film has fallen into obscurity, which makes sense because the only audience for Crash are people who care about Cronenberg. And the R-rated version is clearly not the version that he intended to make. By the time Crash was released in the U.S., the 1996 election was over. So while it inspired many culture section essays, it came around too late to be useful to anyone as a national talking point. That wasn't the case in England, where the timing was right for Crash to get dragged into the pivotal 1997 UK general election. It started with reviews out of Cannes led by Alexander Walker, a critic and biographer who had been around forever. He had written an important book on sex in early Hollywood cinema called The Celluloid Sacrifice, which was published a full 30 years before he saw Crash. Walker called Crash one of the most pornographic films that I've seen. And right-wing biased tabloids like the Daily Mail ran with it from there, calling for a boycott or ban of the movie. In a British political climate that seemed to be leaning labor for the first time in decades, conservative politicians grasping for relevancy tried to use Crash as a cudgel against the left. And it got very ridiculous, Cronenberg recalled, with one guy writing about how sex with cripples was disgusting, and he thought he had everybody on his side. He was writing for a very conservative paper. And then, of course, he got many letters from the disabled, who were very upset when he said that. And then they started to make Rosanna Arquette's character a heroic figure because she is crippled and disabled, but she is still fully sexual and she is going to enjoy sex. Come May 1997, Tony Blair would defeat incumbent John Major in a landslide. Just as Bill Clinton had defeated Bob Dole by a large margin in the U.S., but as in America, the bad press did not lead to financial rewards. After a long review, the UK's censors found nothing objectionable enough in Crash to ban it, but the city of Westminster, meaning central London, did refuse to allow theaters in the city central to show it. This shouldn't have been a huge deal. A Londoner could just get on the tube to neighboring areas like Camden and see it there, 
although many had the perception based on the media coverage that the movie had been outright banned. The previous fall, Ballard had spoken to the ways in which Crash had played into the death rattle of the Tories. What David doesn't realize is that the um, screening of Crash at the London Film Festival has coincided with this sort of panic that the present conservative regime feels in the face of almost certain electoral defeat. <laughs> next May, well, this is true, next May, I mean, they're climbing aboard every conceivable bandwagon. Um, as they've done in a uh, flustered state for the last couple of years. I mean, you know, a town councillor was quoted in one of the papers today as sort of linking Crash, David's film, in some way to Dunblane and the murder of the murder of a school the schoolmaster Philip Lawrence about you know earlier this year, tragically, by one of his 15-year-old pupils on his street outside his school in North London. But, you know, the political parties. Well, really, in a sort of degenerate state. Um, I mean, when you know, we're all. I mean, you see this in the United States. Nobody cares who's elected president. It doesn't really matter. Um, and we're moving into the sort of the, you know the irrelevancy of politics. Those who hold, you know, occupy the 650 seats or whatever in, in, in the House of Commons are desperate to seize the moral high ground. They're climbing on every conceivable hobby horse. Crash has suddenly got into their, you know, into their, onto their radar screen and they've locked onto it. Yeah. It's a shame, in a way, um, because it has nothing to do with the film. In the middle there, when Ballard talked about the increasing irrelevancy of politics, that was a very late 90s end-of-history idea. His perspective on the irrelevancy of political parties may have felt accurate to him during the 1996 U.S. election, but I recognize it more in the presidential election of 2000. Of course, today, Clinton's second term is pretty much defined by the sex scandal that stretched throughout most of its duration, in which the president's personal failings were strategically exploited by right-wing media and Republicans in Congress, leading to impeachment and leaving vice president-turned-candidate Gore in what is euphemistically called a no-win situation. The 2000 election was the first I voted in, and in my world, it was marked by a prevalent idea that Bush and Gore were, quote-unquote, all the same. Until it was Bush who ended up president, that is. If anybody still thought politics were irrelevant after the Florida recount, 9-11 and its aftermath probably disabused them. But we are getting ahead of ourselves. Next week, after many requests, we will finally talk about David Lynch. We will also talk about Jennifer Lynch, his daughter, who made a controversial and much maligned film in the early 90s that, in hindsight, looks like it could have been a blueprint for her dad's much maligned and controversial film of the late 90s. Join us then, won't you? Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. The show is written, produced, and narrated by Karina Longworth. That's me. This season is edited and mixed by Evan Viola. Our research and production assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. Our social media assistant is Brendan Whalen. 
And our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. If you like this show, please tell anyone you can any way that you can. You can follow us on Twitter at RememberThisPod, and we're on Facebook and Instagram, too. And if you go to our website, you must remember thispodcast.com. You can find show notes for this and every other episode, which include lists of our sources and much more. At the website, you can also find merch like hats, t-shirts, and our special limited edition Dead Blondes coloring book. At patreon.com slash Karina Longworth, you can support the podcast, get lots of bonus You Must Remember This content, including scripts or transcripts of our full archive, and some glimpses into other aspects of my life. Now, top-tier subscribers to Patreon can hear ad-free episodes. You can also subscribe to ad-free episodes on Apple Podcasts. Proceeds from Patreon go to help pay all the people who work on the show named above. Finally, subscribing or rating and reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts can really help other people find it. So if you want to spread the word, that's a great way to do it. We'll be back next week with an all-new tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night. You know that science solves crimes. Forensic science is exciting, challenging, and most of all, rewarding work. But there is a shortage of qualified individuals in this field. Hi, I'm Terry with Loyola University of Maryland's Forensic Science Department. Loyola is one of the only colleges in the country offering advanced degrees in forensic pattern analysis and biological forensics. Our courses, taught by forensic experts, feature hands-on training and small class sizes. They are based on real crime scene and forensic examiner training programs to ensure you are ready to make a difference. Our programs are open to students from a variety of academic backgrounds because we believe everyone can contribute to solving crimes. So what are you waiting for? Discover the excitement of forensic science at Loyola University, Maryland. Visit loyola.edu forward slash forensic for more information. That's loyola.edu forward slash forensic because you are ready to make a difference. Join one of Loyola University, Maryland's forensic science programs today.